Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast. With your host, Austin Ye, and Mayu is actually not here with us today. He's on vacation in Paris, like the third or fourth vacation of the year. You're slacking, Mayu. You got to step it up. No, I'm totally joking. Anyways, because I am alone in the preamble, I'm going to keep it nice and short. Just give you a couple of quick updates on what I am doing right now. So I actually firmed up on two deals, I guess, over the past two weeks. One of them being a triplex in Sudbury a vacant possession, and another one being a five unit with separate gas and hydrometers in Windsor. I'll give you a quick story of the strategy I've been using now to try to get deals. Long story short is I look at properties that have been listed on the MLS for a while. So they're overlooked by other investors and other home buyers because typically when you see something on the market for 90 or let's call it 100 days, you automatically think something is wrong with it. And a lot of the times it might be also overpriced as well. This particular property in Sudbury was listed nearly for three months. There was only two or three photos. And in the comments, it says you need to buy it in as this condition. Plus it was tenanted. So right off the bat, I was thinking, okay, it's probably the tenants that are either really troublesome because it says as this condition, there's probably some huge structural or foundational issues or the property itself is just in shambles or overpriced and they're not willing to negotiate on price. Immediately, those were the three scenarios that came in my head because again, it's been listed for a while. So what I did is I called the listing agent directly. And typically I like to call the listing agent directly whenever possible because, and again, only do this if you're comfortable with uh, real estate. I wouldn't advise this for newer investors, but because I was comfortable in the area, I knew my numbers, I knew how to analyze deals. I called the listing agent directly and asked them, I guess here's a secret question that I usually ask after having a little bit of a conversation is, so what's the feedback you've been getting on this property from other investors? I know that this property has been there for 90 days on the market. And of course, there's probably been multiple walkthroughs. Maybe some offers fall on the table. What's the story? What's the, what's the story behind this? And then she'll go like pretty much you force them into a corner into telling you like why hasn't it sold and what other investors or home buyers are saying about this property. And long story short, a lot of it came down to the tenants. People didn't want to assume any sort of tenants and pricing as well. But now she said that the sellers are more willing to go down in price because again, it's been sitting on the market for a while and they're losing confidence with all of these negative headlines. So that being said, I said, yeah, I mean, that's going to be sort of the same issue for me as tenants. Is there any way that we can get vacant possession? And she said, let me speak to the sellers. And wouldn't you know, the sellers agreed for vacant possession. And they said they were very confident in getting the tenants out. In fact, the one tenant that seemed to scare everyone from not buying the deal because they had so much garbage in the unit that with tenants like that, you see that and you are almost certain that they're not going to move because they have so many belongings and possessions in there. There's no way they're going to be able to pack all of this and move it into their next property. And there were their personal belongings all in the backyard as well. Turns out that that tenant was actually the owner's son. So moving that tenant would be much easier than a lot of people were anticipating. 
So yeah, I mean, vacant possession, was able to negotiate the price down. And even though it says as its condition, I still put an inspection clause in there, got a full inspection report, minor stuff here and there. And I even pushed back to have the seller fix these minor things before closing to which they agreed upon. So got a steal of a deal and was able to raise capital for it pretty much in one day from one of the partners I've done business with before because of how hot the deal actually is. And I could say this story with two other examples where I've done something similar to this. So it's all about picking up the phone, making phone calls and seeing opportunities that others might not see. Again, we're real estate investors. We're here to solve problems. Don't let listing price scare you. Don't let the terms on the listings scare you. It's always worthwhile to give a call and see what you can negotiate, right? Because at the end of the day, if a property has been sitting on the market for a while, chances are some of these sellers might actually be motivated and be willing to work with you on your terms or and price. Anyways, that's my little spiel for today. We're going to jump right into today's podcast with our guest, Renee Massey. Renee's parents were high school teachers and Renee himself became a teacher as well but then quickly quit that to become a full-time contractor, jumping into the entrepreneurial and real estate life. Since then, he started off buying single-family homes, then eventually progressing onto multifamily homes. He is an investor-oriented realtor in Kingston, Ontario, and is also an expert in all things investing in Kingston, Ontario. So if you guys ever considered investing in Kingston or looking into your next market to invest in, this is an episode you definitely don't want to miss out. Hope you guys enjoy. everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Renee Mass. Renee, how's everything going? Doing very well. Good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> awesome, Renee. So, so Renee, for anyone that doesn't know you and our listeners, why don't you start by giving us a quick rundown on yourself, how you got into this space? Sounds good. Yeah. I'm a realtor, also a full-time investor, and I coach people. I love this business. Nice. Okay. <laughs> how did you get into <laughs> the investing space? Did you start off as a realtor first or an investor? I started off as a teacher. And saw the potential of it and then became a contractor. I thought that was the best route to get involved in real estate. And it got me this far. And uh, little by little, I got my license as a realtor and then uh, started buying uh, pseudo rentals, then doing duplexes and then multifamilies. So you started off as a teacher, like high school teacher. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone tells you, you know, you got to have a good education. So my parents were like, go to university. And that's what I did. And I had a great time. But then uh, when I became a teacher, they wanted me to teach French. As much as I liked speaking French, teaching it to people who don't really care for it, it wasn't my thing. So I left after three months. And they were going, what are you you talking about leaving? You had the pension, the summer's off, the benefits. I was like, I wasn't happy. I didn't like it. So I jumped into contracting. Wow, that's a that's a complete shift for sure. And you're talking to a guy who's grade nine applied French because I didn't see any applications for it. I was like, not a it's common. It's not needed. It's not needed. It's, it's a waste of time, especially if you don't like it, the language. Yeah. So you're working for yourself when you went into the contracting side. Walk us through that and how that led into your first investment property. Sure. So I tell this to everybody here is um, at the age of 21, I seem to have two doors. I had the door of security or the door of freedom. And for some reason, I did not care for security. I wanted the freedom. And from so it's been close to next year, it'll be 30 years. It's hard to believe 30 years. Wow. I've been on my own. I've been doing my own thing. I've been a contractor, a realtor, and now investor. And it's been good. It's been a big, good choice. Nice. So from contracting, you went, I guess, the next step in life for you was being a realtor before the investing started, it sounds like. I did both. I did a bit of both because obviously, you know, you buy your first property. 
it's going to cash a little bit, but not enough to have substantial amounts. Yeah. But I had the team to fix anything. So bit mm-hmm. by bit, it grew from there. I'm just curious about your contracting background. Is that something that you learned yourself or did you formally study that? Here's what I could do very well. Which, what I learned in university is I learned how to knock on a door. I learned how to sell and learn how to canvas. I learned how to market. I learned how to talk to people. And with the contractors, I've always hired people. Technically, I'm not that handy, but I could always hire people that were very handy. And so they enjoyed having somebody who could actually speak to the public and sell. Mm -hmm. So it worked hand in hand. I think deep down, I'm more of a business owner slash Mm -hmm. someone who can sell. So I was confident when I did drop the teaching career that I would excel because I knew how to sell. I enjoyed talking with people, helping them out. I fit the link between those contractors that Mm -hmm. could work, but couldn't find work. So I hired a team and the team varied. Right now, I've got three guys who all they do is renovate. Back in the day, I had like easily eight, nine guys, but my plans have changed. Now we're more focused on uh, multifamilies and duplex conversions. That's awesome. I kind of want to go into that a little bit because I think selling is a skill that a lot of real estate investors significantly like overlook. And we all get into this. We don't want to be salespeople and we don't want to... Um, you know, whatever, whatever we tell ourselves, we, we kind of have this negative um, perception of salespeople, right? But I think whether you're convincing a joint venture partner to invest in your deal, whether you're convincing a contractor to do some work for you, no matter whether you're convincing a seller to sell to you directly, right? We're always kind of constantly selling. So how did you go about getting that experience at a young age? Did you do any particular jobs that really taught you really well? Two things. So I really believe canvassing, going door to door, you learn how to sell when you go door to door. You get a lot of no's, you build up a bit of education with that. But I was actually teaching people how to do it. There was a system in play. If I have a superpower, it would be simplifying big concepts and bring it into procedures. So I would hire students from Queens looking for work and I would show them exactly how to canvas properly. I did that for 10 years and it worked quite well. Another thing that's helped immensely is Selling, I mean, sure, as you mentioned, people have a negative connotation towards it. But ultimately, nowadays, selling is more educating. This is where it comes back to my teaching side. Even though I'm not a teacher, I do enjoy learning and educating people. So as long as you can educate people, educate your JV partners, educate your investors, you're better off. And then ultimately, you don't need to convince them. You're simply educating them about the benefits, the pros and cons to it, and showing them how it can be beneficial to them and actually showing them that they can reach their goal faster by working with us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Salesmen always have negative connotations. I don't think that has uh, really changed, but it's about taking the value add approach, yeah. right? With everything that we do as real estate investors in the community, you want to add value and then you make an ask at the end and the yes. ask is never going to be the majority. That's always going to be secondary to adding value. I kind of yes. want to jump into your real estate. Uh, actually, before actually we even jump into the real estate journey. So you have your businesses, set up and operating how long before you ended up purchasing your first investment property because you had the contracting and the real estate agent business right i had the contracting first and then eventually became a realtor when did it occur i think i bought my first property i mean i needed a place to stay so i bought a place for me to stay in and then what i did is i basically red hack i hacked the place up there were three people living upstairs i was living in a living room even before even the word was known, that's what I was doing. It was just a way of getting by and making sense of it. 
So yeah, my first property that I bought, I bought it for my own primary home and then refinanced it. And my wife at the time, she needed a place to practice her profession. So we bought a commercial building with that. And basically it was good timing. I was a realtor by then and I can see the price dip. It was on the market for four years, vacant for two. And every year they dipped at 40,000. So I just, I didn't even talk. It seems strange to me now, but I didn't even talk to the listing agent. I simply sent an offer, $40,000. I dipped at $40,000 and they were like, whoa, there's an offer. And they were thrilled to get an offer. And then eventually we settled on it. And the banks were like, you're buying this for land only. And it worked out. It needed a bit of work. And we did all the work in the evenings and nights while she did her practice during the day. And she had three, four practitioners at the time as well. So it was a mutual thing. I would say what helped immensely is educating, learning through others, and meeting other people who are doing so. This is back, my first property I bought was 2005. The internet, sure, was around, but it wasn't as this prominent for real estate, it wasn't as omnipotent as it is now. With buying your first commercial property, how was that process like? Because prior to that, you only owned your residential property. And just touching on that commercial property that's been listed mm-hmm. on the market for a while, like what opportunity did you see? that others didn't see? Because you're obviously an agent. Was the agent listing it incorrectly? Yeah. Would you be able to chime no. into details? No. It had problems. It had problems. So here's what I tell my coaching client. I say, or even, even my, my clients, my real estate clients, uh, I say, what problems do you like to solve? Because you, you mentioned it. If you're adding value to a property, if you're adding value to somebody, for, for somebody, you're helping them out, then the money flows to it. So with the building in particular, there's always problems with it. And as a contract with contracting background, I was very happy to solve certain problems. With this particular building, I believe it was the fact, three things. It was uh, the roof leaked. So it was solving that. It was a flat roof. Second, the taxes were fairly high. And it was Traza floors, which are the Mercedes of floors, but it's hard to modify the building. So we made it work. We did lower the taxes on this one. We got a good contractor to the roof. And for the rooms, there was a lot of doors. We just filled in the doors. So really, it comes down to what problems do I like to solve? And renovation problems are fairly easy to solve. And I like solving those issues. Nice. So once you had that commercial unit, how did you continue to scale up your portfolio? I understand it was a different time, but I'm sure a lot of the same concepts yeah. probably would apply now, right? It's quite simple. So it's, it's basically the burr, as, as everybody knows, is you're basically buying at a reasonable price adding value to it through renovations, tenant turnover, or adding secondary suite to it, and then refinancing and pulling money out. And so it's basically rotating the capital. And when did you really start kind of scaling up your investments? It was the bank actually showed me that one because what they did, they assessed it at a higher, we bought it, I think for, I mean, it was, they assessed it at a higher value. So once we poured all the money in, then we refinanced it. And then I was living off credit cards because I had to pay for <laughs> for all these expenses. They refinanced it. And then basically the purchase price was the mortgage. And then we were able to float on it. So, but the burst strategy, the burst strategy is the way to go. You basically, you're rotating capital and you're pulling all your money out and you're leaving as little as possible in there. Here's what I tell my investors is the banks have this amazing capability of creating money out of thin air. Mm-hmm. So why not take full advantage of that? and make sure that all their money's in there and all our money's out of that. Right. You're kind of passing on the risk a little bit to the bank as well. Like the bank is your first partner in most scenarios, right? Where they definitely take on a significant amount of risk as well. Or private money as well. Private money definitely helps. You can, you can yeah. buy stuff. I keep on telling people that you can buy stuff 100% loan to value. 
So I guess that was a different time for sure when that commercial building was sitting on the market for four years, yes, right? But yes. Did you continue yes. to do commercial transactions after that? Or did you prefer and do you recommend individuals start off with single family triplex, fourplex? And that kind of leads me into the market that you're located in, Kingston. Yep. We just love to hear what kind of strategies work there. I know it's a loaded question. So yeah. So so I got in more into student rentals because of the cash flow. This is what thought my goal was cash flow at the time. And the great thing with students is that there's never a rent control issue because most students, there's a rotation of tenants. Now is basically student, it's uh, duplex conversions, which work as well as multiplexes. And more and more multiplexes are really the more where smart money goes mm-hmm. with large sums. Just a couple of questions on the student rental portfolio. Mayu and I, sure. we, have, we have a few ourselves. I guess we'll take this as a coaching opportunity. One mm-hmm. of the issues that we sure. run across quite often is, is that we renovate the property. And I hear this from other student rental landlords as well. You put in your first batch of students and they may end up ruining it or there's quite a bit of maintenance or repairs after every turnaround. Yeah. So our cash flow on our Excel yeah, isn't true. necessarily our cash flow in real life because of all of that maintenance. So how did you get around that? Is that just the reality of that particular asset class? It's kind of the reality of student rentals. They're going to be in rougher shape. Also, it's renovating to what extent? So we renovate, like basically when we renovate, we renovate to rent. With student rentals, yeah, they need a lot more management. They need a lot more care. And if they're properly managed, then there's less wear and tear. But for example, um, had a student rental where the students moved in, they were very pleasant, kind, and the toilet leaked. Like it didn't, it, it ran. Yeah. You know, the cap isn't quite closed up. It, it just runs constantly. Well, the previous tenant knew about this and they would just tap twice and they would close it. These people, this is their first house. They only lived with their parents in the university, so they had no idea. So I got a call on Friday. This is it always happens on Friday, Friday <laughs> at four, you know, Friday at four. <laughs> The utilities company in Kingston calls me up and they go, uh, are you filling in a pool? You're running a lot of water. I'm like, no, I'm not running. Like, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, this particular property here. I'm like, no, the, the toilet was leaking. So it was quite a costly mistake. But what all I can say is those who are investing in pseudo rentals, yeah, it's going to take more management attention and more management cost. But hopefully the cash flow covers all that yeah. cost of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. one of the realities of it. And when you went student rentals to multifamily, because it sounds like you're doing more multifamily yeah. now, right? Yeah. Is it multifamily centric to kind of Kingston? Are you investing all across Ontario? Because yeah. I guess student rentals, Kingston makes a lot of sense, right? The yeah. biggest hurdle that I face, at least when I look at multifamily is, in my opinion, you can't be as picky geographically. The inventory of apartments and the inventory of true larger apartment buildings are a lot smaller, right? So you kind of have to have a bigger lens on things. Is that how you've been looking at it? And did you kind of just expand your horizon? Yes, I've thought considerably of expanding outside of Kingston, but my team is here, meaning my maintenance staff. We have a property management company as well, which is here as well. My leasing agents here, my electrician, the plumber, all the people that I rely on are here. Sure, we can go elsewhere, but there's so many opportunities here. There's so many multiplexes here. There's such a low vacancy. I think, I believe, I'm always very favorable of of Kingston. It's 1.1 was last year's vacancy rate, which is extremely low. So there's no need for me to go anywhere elsewhere. I mean, could I be scaling quicker if I went elsewhere? Yeah, but I'm happy with where we're at now and how we're acquiring. The last building we acquired was this month, 16plex. The way it occurred was I knew the owner. 
So Kingston's so small that I had cash flow game nights and uh, the owner showed up. He saw some of my videos. He knew who I was. I knew who he was because it was a small town. And he was actually contacting me because his new tenant was moving in and they put my name as landlord. So he was verifying or vetting this one tenant. And I said, hey, it's been a while. What you been up to because of COVID? And he goes, I'm selling all my properties. I said, well, I'd love to uh, give you an offer on it. That's how it started. So this 16 plex that we purchased was an off-market deal. And it worked out. And prior to closing, this is where, I mean, luck plays a role in this. But I think those who work consistently at it are the luckiest ones. But prior to closing, there were seven vacant units in a 16 plex. So we increased the rents by close to 4,000. But the rent roll, it was increased by 4,000 a month, which is 50,000 wow. a year. Curiosity. Why were there seven vacant units? Like that, what was the <laughs> backstory there? <laughs> I kept on asking the same thing, but no one could give me an answer. I asked the listing agent. He, it wasn't on the market, but he still was working with, a, with an agent, mm-hmm. which I knew. No one could give me an answer on it. Even the lawyer was, I was like, this is really unusual. This is bizarre. It's just too wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he's getting ready to, he was getting ready to list it. So he maybe he tried to keep as many units vacant. I don't know. He said he was losing money on it. Mm. Anyways, we increased the value prior to closing. We increased it to a million dollars before closing. It's kind of unbelievable, but it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things about hopping around in different markets. At least when I was investing in winter, there was also a niche where investors would reach out to me before anyone else, real estate agents, contractors, property managers, if there ever was a deal. So if you are a specialist and everyone knows you in the community, they're going to reach out to you first for any sort of exclusive deals. Yes, yes. So this is a business of network. The more people Mm -hmm. you know, the more people who know what you do, the better, the easier it is. Mm -hmm. So getting into that 16 unit, can we walk through the process? Was it fairly straightforward going in and just renovating each unit and refining or were there any hurdles <laughs> along the way we haven't even renovated we just okay. purchased it oh we just, just purchased, just purchased it this month the beginning of the month mm-hmm. and i rented uh, my team and i as a management company we rented all seven units sight unseen basically wow wow because yeah. the vacancy rate in kingston is so low and sure i rented to students and some of them i rented to international students but international students typically want four months so with a four-month lease, it's perfect because even we were told in August that these units were vacant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not enough time. Most responsible individuals will, prior to moving, they'll, they'll move two months prior or something, though, that they're responsible. Mm-hmm. It's like it was kind of a creative solution at the same time as well, because I'm sure when you bought it, half the building vacant sounds great, but it probably would have pushed you into private money. Did you guys end up closing this with more conventional financing because you were able to rent it out before you closed the purchase? The lender had no idea that these places, that some of the vacant the units were vacant. For them, they were, there was leases with them. They just ended at that um, time. Uh, gotcha. So we got a we got a forty year amortization with CMHC First National at four point zero four percent, which is awesome. Yeah, man. that's incredible. Yeah, it's yeah, awesome. Mm-hmm. So, would you say this is a more straightforward project? We want to touch on a project where, obviously, being a couple of decades in the real estate game, there yep. are those projects that really test us. Right, they're like a make or break. Oh, we uh, want to dig into one of those because I think that gives more incentive to investors in the reality of investing. Yeah. Well, uh, let me see now. Uh, we're doing. Uh, we're in the process of doing three duplex conversions and uh, Hydro One. As lovely as they are, they're so delayed. We asked for an overlay, 
back in June to separate both uh, electrical panels. Well, to make one electrical panel, cut the power off and make it two electric panels, one per unit. This was end of August or end of June, we asked, and only now are they actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Talking about the Kingston market, I guess, coming back there. And it sounds like you're having quite a few conversions. And I know the Hyderabad struggles for sure. But in the Kingston market, does the student rental still work? Because you started off with that and then the apartment buildings. And then also you've got conversion projects on the go as well. Yeah. I'm wondering what strategy. Was. Student rentals don't work. Any. Student won't work. They're just too expensive now. They just don't cash flow as they used to. Yeah. It made sense. Now it doesn't make any sense. What makes sense now is duplex conversions or multiplexes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And being a realtor, like, do you have some rough ballparks on numbers just so that our audience knows about the Kingston market a little bit? Uh, right now we're in a deflationary month. It's hard to tell. Like things have, have settled a bit around the 500 range. What I can tell you is the rents are comparable to Durham, mm-hmm. but the prices are easily 30% lower than Durham. So mm-hmm. an average family dwelling you can get in, in Kingston, 500 to 550 or so. Okay. And then convert it to duplex and then refinance. Gotcha. I guess your conversion cost, because we do find that it, it shouldn't really vary that much, but for some reason I find like it varies yeah. quite drastically when you go like well into like London to like North Bay from, I guess, some of like your clients and, and like what they buy and what they spend. Do you have an idea what the cost to convert would be? Okay. So with my clients, my, as a realtor, these people spend about a hundred thousand to 120 as an investor when they're JV partnering with me. We spend a lot less than that because it's my own guys. It's my own team. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've, been, you've kind of internalized a couple of those costs and you have, and I guess this goes back to, to one thing I was talking to someone else the other day, like everyone has a unique advantage to them, yeah. right? Some people it's like the financing, some people it's the deal hunting, some people it's like the contracting, right? So you've really got it down from like a deal hunting as a realtor down to the contracting down to yeah, and the property management, right. which I think is important. Without my mm-hmm. team of contractings, we wouldn't have been able to add a million dollar value to the 60 plex. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. No property management company would have enjoyed putting in uh, out of the seven units, three of them are only for four months. But you yeah. must understand, I mean, we're ready to renovate in January. We're not ready to renovate now in September, October. It's too early. Of We only knew about this in August. So it's perfect. Four months, they're there for four months. They're happy with that. We get the high rents. And then come January, we're ready to, re- to renovate. The best time to renovate is January, February, March. Cheaper. Mm-hmm. It's also cheaper as well. Mm-hmm. Are you saying just because the contractors aren't getting as much business? And so in those yeah. months, they're yeah. interesting. As a contractor, yeah. everyone's calling. As a previous contractor, I don't consider myself a contractor anymore, but spring, everybody's looking for work to get done. And mm-hmm. then summer is very busy, you know, and then fall, but Christmas time, December, January, February, no one's thinking of renovating their houses or painting their houses or getting some stuff done. Yeah. They're thinking about Christmas and paying for Christmas and, and just and keeping low key. So we'll be able to get more work done quicker in January, February, March. And then also keep in mind, when do people move? They don't move in the middle of January. They, they mm-hmm. move. People move in the summer months. Yeah. So the best time to renovate these properties, we'll probably re- we'll renovate three units and legalize one. We'll do that in January, February, and then back on the rental market in the spring. And uh, then you're able to get, you're able to maximize also the rental market because I'm sure you know this as well, where February, you start renting a unit in February, you're not going to get top price. You start renting a unit 
for September 1st. Everybody's looking for September 1st. So it, it raises the prices on it. Yeah. Funny enough as well, that's also when the real estate market is traditionally slower during those months too, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. So uh, it works out in all angles. One key point you mentioned that quite shocking to me is that the rents in Kingston are somewhat similar to Durham. Yes. Do you know the underlying reason for that? I think the vacancy rate, the vacancy rate being last year was 1.4, uh, 2019, it was 0. 0.6 or something. It's crazy. Think about it this way. I mean, Kingston's a small town and mm -hmm. uh, it's not very big either, but everybody wants to live downtown by the university and the university is expanding. South of that is the water. We can't expand into the water. And north of that is conservation area. In the east and west, it's no longer Kingston. And people mm -hmm. don't want to live all that far. So everyone's concentrated in the, in the, in the downtown core. It's, it's just one of those places where it's cheaper. It's better living. People see the value of it. And it's a government town. It's a solid government town where there's hospitals. There's three hospitals for such a small town of 130,000. There's mm. military as well. There's constantly people coming in. There's uh, prisons. There's five prisons in Kingston. So that's also government money. It's just one of those solid communities where the economy is solid. Gotcha. So mostly with government companies, it seems like that's the main employer down in Kingston. I'd say 50% of people living in Kingston are directly or indirectly linked to government. Oh, yeah. Oh, one more thing I forgot. If you look at the map of Kingston, you'll see a huge farm in the middle of the city yes, which is owned by which is owned yeah. by which is owned by the government federal government which is the prison because back in the day every prison had its farm in order to feed their inmates and for some reason the government's just kept that land and so we're squeezed you know the city of kingston is only so big but in the middle of mm -hmm. kingston there's a big huge farm and two prisons in it and which will probably be there for a very, very likely time. Because once Kingston Penitentiary closed down, uh, everybody went to uh, Collins Bay Penitentiary. Interesting. Yeah, yeah very, very interesting. I don't think they're actively opening up prison. <laughs> no, no <laughs> around, uh, and, and I don't think they're going to be selling that land either. There's, yeah. no, there's no talk of selling that land at all. But there is talk of, uh, we, have, we now have a, a third bridge crossing, which is uh, to the east end which was $180 million to build a bridge. I see. I guess in terms of future growth though for the city, like what's driving it? Because government employment, probably pretty flat. Maybe when you have a liberal government, it helps a little bit. Conservative, maybe not without getting too into the politics of it, right? But that's kind of the government employment, which is very safe. So there is a huge yep. benefit to that. But yeah. I'm also assuming your tenant profile usually is not the government workers, or maybe they are, right? But what's like attracting people in now? I think just the fact that it's cheaper living. Mm -hmm. There's also, uh, it's a beautiful town. There's a downtown. There's okay. a beautiful downtown. And a lot of immigrants are, in the past, you know, maybe 10 years ago or five years ago, you'd have immigrants going directly to Toronto because they had a family or cousin or an aunt who lived there. Now, there's cousins and aunts that live in Kingston, so they're coming directly here. So this is what I tell my investors often is um, you got to, consider certain perspectives. So there's 400,000 immigrants coming to Canada each and every year. It used to be 250, but the federal government increased it because it's such a huge part of our economy. So out of those 400,000 immigrants, pretty much close to half of them come to Southern Ontario. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And most of them, when they arrive, they rent for about five to seven years before buying a property on average. 
So there's yeah. a huge demand. There's a huge demand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally makes sense. We kind of want to dive into the numbers aspect of things. For duplex conversions, you said that they still work. At least in some of the markets I was taking a look at, the duplex conversions have been a bit more difficult, or maybe particularly in Niagara because yep. of the current interest rates. What are the numbers you're seeing on the duplex conversion and from like acquisition, rental costs, mm-hmm. around estimated ARV yeah. and rentals? What you can buy at the moment, I mean, the market's shifted a lot. Some people have to move. Some people don't care to, to sell. It's hard to tell, but I would say I would, I would put it in the, in the 450 to 550 to get uh, a house that you could potentially duplex. The renovation costs can be 80000 to 120000 to renovate. And then for after repair value, this is where it gets a bit tricky. I've told my investors we're refinancing in the spring. Right now, the numbers are relatively low. So we're waiting until the spring market to easily get more comparables. I mean, just six months ago, in March, I renovated. Um, we finished the duplex conversion and it came in at 730. It's not worth 730 now. It's probably worth mm-hmm. 630. So uh, it's hard to say. I'd say at the moment, a duplex conversion completed 650. 650. Yeah. Here is going to be mm-hmm. 700. You know, there's still a shortage of accommodation and uh, the rents are, even though the interest rates has gone up and the, the market's dipped a bit, the rents have gone up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it seems like duplex conversions ultimately, like you're not really pulling out all of your capital, but the objective is pull out the renovation money plus a portion of the down payment. You'll definitely Precisely. have. Yeah. But the assets are top notch, right? Here's the way I like to look at it. Uh, as I say, it's, it's just like baseball. So just just purchasing the buildings, you're on first base. Eventually, you're going to get the home run. And the home run is pulling all your money out. At what point are you going to pull out your money, all of it? I mean, back in 2019, man, we pulled out all of our money. And it, that's a home run. How often does that happen? Not all the time. But over time, if you're on first base, over time, you're going to get on second, third, and you're going to get that home run. You're going to pull all your money out. I mean, investing is, is uh, you got to be patient at times. Some people right. like to have results right away. Sure, you're going to yeah. have results, but it's also kind of risky. So be patient with it. Keep on buying. Keep on rotating capital. And eventually, there's a buildup that it accumulates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the one thing I want to ask you about, Rene, um, sure. I know we've been talking quite a bit about a couple of different things, but like you've been in this journey now for 30 years. Along the way, you know, construction companies still operating, realtor business yeah. still operating. You've also started up a property management business. You've also started up a joint venturing business, it seems, right? Um, yep. And now apartment buildings as well, right? What allowed you to to kind of scale up that way? What were some of the pain points along the way and some of the biggest lessons? I would say anything you focus on will grow. You have to persist with it. I mean, I, I think I figured out over, over the years, I figured out the, the recipe for success. And it's not that complicated. First one is believing that it's possible and having a kind of a vision of some sort, a detailed vision of what you're looking to do. Mm-hmm. And then it's, this is where it gets more difficult. It's actually following that plan to the T with discipline, meaning when doing stuff you don't want to do and doing it. And then the most difficult part is the persistence because there's people who call me up and they want some coaching or they're, they're asking questions on, on investing. And they're like, I'm asking all these questions because I don't want to fail. 
you, it's gonna it's bound to happen where you're gonna fail i mean failure are simply lessons along the way i can write a whole book about the lessons i've had and ultimately they were there to teach me good lessons and then move on to bigger better things but this is a journey in which you're going to learn along the way and i think it's it's just the fact that early on i was an entrepreneur and i was i accepted the failures that uh, to say they're easier no but it's what do i have control over my reaction towards it if i'm going to be overly reactive on it and create misery for myself and spend all my energy on the negative on the obstacles i need to see the goal so here's what i tell people is sure you got the goal right here you got the obstacles you got to look beyond the obstacles. You got to look at the goal and then the obstacles. Sure. Go right through them, solve them and move on. So what I like to do is I like to solve problems and obstacles for myself and others, my investors. Oh, that's great advice. So I guess along the way though, if you were to pinpoint like one of the main obstacles that you face that anyone should really anticipate, right? What would you kind of choose? You know, the only thing that often that stands in one's way for growth, mental growth, emotional growth, spiritual growth, or financial growth is themselves. So I, I would say, I would say, know, know who you are, know what you want to build and know your weaknesses and strengths and surround yourself with those who can actually help and don't be a lone wolf and believing that you can do all of it. Okay. So the mistakes yeah. I see often people doing is they think they can do it all themselves or they're greedy and they want to do it all of themselves and then it doesn't work out and then they blame they blame others and it's not it's not for them it, it's what's the point yeah yeah no it's very true and whenever you're lone wolfing anything any of the difficulties you face you just gotta like i guess people try to figure it out themselves and that's what gets them to quit when you have a partner in crime or better yet a group of people who are working through these same issues or have surpass these issues before that's when you continue to stay motivated and grinding which is something that i need to improve on again because i haven't been out in events for a while <laughs> <laughs> but just yeah, having having you mentioned it, yeah having that support it's important to have a support or mentor or coach that you can bounce a few ideas off and then grow from there because if you're doing it on your own it's a lot more difficult and just time consuming i wouldn't be where i am now if it wasn't for good coaches i learned from them and then i was able to speed the process up a lot quicker Awesome. Okay. So Renee, I guess on that topic, um, usually we ask, I guess, these two questions. Sure. Uh, the first is like, where do you see yourself and, and your business going from here for over the next five years, right? We talked quite a bit about what you've done to date, um, but where do you see it going? I love growth. I love development growth, mental growth, spiritual growth, and financial growth. It all goes hand in hand. So I will keep doing what I enjoy doing, helping other people out, finding opportunities and investing properly. Awesome. And for a new investor in today's market, what do you see as being the biggest risk themselves is is not working with the right individuals not working with the right team and expecting results right away sometimes you're not going to get results right away my first property i bought i think a cash flowed a hundred dollars right. you gotta have to be patient i think new investors need to be patient keep buying keep adding value but I felt uh, it's after five to six, that's after five years, really, do you see the results out of it? Yeah. No, that yeah. Makes sense. yeah. Totally. Delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are not willing to pursue that. Yeah. It's true. Not, what, not even with real estate, entrepreneurship in general, people expect results too quickly. And <laughs> yes. so when they don't get it within the first year, they just yeah. abandon it. Not a good idea. 
I'm going to pivot to something else. So yeah, I've hired people that expected results right away, especially with real estate, finding good deals. And I'm like, no, it just doesn't happen that way. I mean, it could take three months. Uh, You got to be patient. Exactly. That's why exactly as you said, have the goal and then overcome the obstacles because those are obstacles, right? Like Mm -hmm. you you got to put in the work before you get the results. Anyways, Renee, really appreciate you jumping on this podcast. We always love bringing more experienced guests to the podcast because it shows a lot of wisdom, right? Being in the game for a few decades, you've seen it all. You've been through good situations, bad situations. So it's always great to kind of pick your brain and hear what newer investors or even investors that haven't even been in the game for more than five years need to do to continue operating at such a high level. If people want to connect with you, learn with you, or hear more of your content, how can they best do so? Social media, Renee Mass, just reach out. My number, emails are on there, my YouTube channel, check it out. It's all there. Perfect. All of that will be in the show notes down below. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast. It helps continue bringing great guests like Renee onto our podcast. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.